Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday, and it is June the 5th, uh, 2020. Uh, The uh, year is moving right along, and the craziness is moving right along. Also, I thank you so much for joining me. Those of you who are familiar with me, familiar with this program, know that I generally focus on immigration, and immigration is actually an element of what we're witnessing today. It may not be immediately um, apparent, But I think that by the end of the hour, you will understand exactly what I am saying. But first things first, uh, I I want to move immediately to an article that I wrote this past week for Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com. I hope that everybody uh, will check out my article uh, after the program, though. It'll be there waiting for you. And by the way, if you like my articles, if you like my radio show, I ask one favor. Let as many of your friends and neighbors and co-workers, whatever, let them know about my program. Be part of what I call my bucket brigade of truth. I do this program. It's not sponsored. You know there's no commercials. Um, I pay for the show, and uh, I don't get anything out of it except, I hope, an opportunity to help our fellow Americans understand the madness that's going on. I have been at it ever since the attacks of 9-11, an existential threat to America and Americans. Quite frankly, we are once again facing an existential threat. Uh, There's many reasons behind it. I have never seen our politicians be dumber, more corrupt, um, and more selfish. I, I, I just never would have imagined that we would witness this country devolve into this situation. Uh, I want to be clear. The death of George Floyd was horrific. Uh, I spent 30 years, almost all you know, my adult life doing law enforcement. I'm still very much involved with the issue, even though I no longer carry a badge. I no longer execute warrants. But uh, this is my life's work. And what I saw in that video, and I don't want anyone prejudging the case, everybody involved is accused, not convicted. We've got to make clear distinctions And that's something that we have to really keep in the front of our minds with everything that we see, and not just in this case. In this country, in these United States, you are innocent until proven guilty. And in some cases, what happened is going to be a little bit complicated in terms of the other police officers, and I'll get to that also. But I could barely watch what happened to Mr. Floyd. And I've arrested murderers. I've arrested terrorists i've arrested child molesters and i have to tell you i'm still trying to reconcile in my mind what i saw because it kept me awake it so disturbed me and it takes a lot to disturb somebody who spent 30 years enforcing the laws of course this brings us back to a point that i've made in the past that maybe some people who are in law enforcement uh, after a few years develop post-traumatic stress and need to be given a graceful way of leaving I made that point in my podcast at teamdml, dmlnews.com. You know, people go into the military. They don't always become what they call lifers. Some people leave after five years, ten years. They say, okay, I've served my country. I've had that adventure, and it's time to move on. I'd rather be a carpenter. I'd rather be a school teacher. Uh, I'd rather be a plumber, uh, an airline pilot, whatever. Uh, You know, we ought to offer a way out for people in law enforcement because sometimes, and I'm not saying that's this case at all, again, no no comparisons to be drawn, but law enforcement is a very tough job. And to listen to the politicians excoriate police, and I'm going to tell you, I'm a white guy, and I've had a couple of encounters with police officers uh, that were less than thrilling, where you wondered if the guy had cement between his ears. But they're the exception. It's been a privilege to work with men and women in law enforcement because I'll tell you, 99% of them are dedicated, honorable, honest, decent, devoted to the profession, and it is a profession. 
And it only takes one bad guy thought riots around the world. Think about that. And put it in perspective. And this is not to minimize this either, because everyone is so touchy about, God forbid you say anything that's a little bit off-center, and, oh, my God, how could you say that? But there was a report issued by by CNBC, um, and, and in fact, it was done by, uh, I believe it was JAMA did the report also. There's been a number of reports about how many people die because of medical malpractice. And you would be stunned. Approximately, and this number blew me away, 250,000 people in 2017 died because of mistakes made by doctors or nurses or whatever. 250,000. Let that number sink in. And then I will tell you that they said that in some cases the estimate could be as high as 440,000. Medical malpractice, medical malpractice, according to these reports done by professionals, and this isn't, you know, the, the corner drugstore that's handing out a circular. These studies that were done say that medical malpractice is the third leading cause of death in America. Now, why am I talking about medical malpractice? Because when police do the things they do and it goes really badly, in a matter of speaking, you could argue you're witnessing law enforcement malpractice. Lots of people and lots of professions shouldn't be there. I defy you to tell me that every teacher that you had from the day that you started kindergarten to the day that you completed your college education, if you went to college, every teacher was brilliant and the right person for the job. Baloney. There were many round pegs and square holes. But in medicine and in law enforcement, people can die as a consequence. Doctors bury their mistakes. Sometimes law enforcement officers are the ones who are buried. That's the delicate balance. Somebody once described law enforcement officers as those people who run toward that which any sane person would run from. I've worked closely with the police. I've gone on patrol with them, and you're sitting in a car, and everything is peaceful, quiet, and the call goes out, shots fired. And now you're hurtling through city traffic at 70, 80 miles an hour, lights and sirens, and you're running into a gun battle. I just want you to stop and think of the enormity of that situation. Or you find yourself, as I have, running down a dark alleyway by yourself, chasing a guy that's twice your size, and the guy has a gun, and you're chasing him. And all he has to do is turn around and shoot, and perhaps you don't go home that night. Or perhaps you go home and, and, and wish you didn't go home because you'd be so terribly um, injured, spend your life in a wheelchair, whatever. It's a dangerous, dangerous job. And it's a tough job. And when I hear this nonsense about defunding the police by the politicians, who at the end of the day are in charge of the police, I, I want the enormity of the statement to sink in. The president is the commander-in-chief of our armed forces. He's also the commander-in-chief of all federal law enforcement agencies. Mayors are the uh, commander-in-chief of their police department. Same thing with governors. So when a police department goes bad, if you want to know who is at the top of the pyramid, it's very often these big-mouth idiot mayors and governors who've created sanctuary cities, who have failed to exhibit real leadership in running their departments. And so bad things happen. When you look at what happened in Minneapolis, please realize, number one, the chief of police is black. And the only reason I make mention of that, and it's according to published reports, I don't think that the department is necessarily racist. In fact, I don't see much race in law enforcement in these issues. Does that mean that the police interact properly with the black community? There's lots of tensions and lots of pressures coming in both directions. Nobody ever looks at it from the police officer's standpoint. Get pulled over by a cop, and we've all been there, and you get that terrible feeling. Oh, boy, I hope I don't get a ticket because this is going to be bad. My insurance is going to go up and, and, and whatever. And if somebody has had scrapes with the law, then we're really upping the, the ante. But put yourself in the position of the law enforcement officer making that stop, knowing that every encounter with the public can result in something really bad. I mean, really bad. It could be a chase. It could be a shootout. It could be a fight. Someone could get hurt. Somebody could get killed. Every stop engenders that level of risk. There's no such thing as a minor stop, a minor arrest. 
I've arrested people wanted for multiple homicides, and they were meek as lambs. You know, sit down, put your hands on top of your head, cross your legs at your ankles, and they do exactly as they're told. You would think they were robots. And you could arrest some guy that was working illegally in a factory, and the next thing you know, he's throwing knives and, and, and anything he can get his hands on at you. You just don't know how people are going to react when they're confronted by law enforcement. Every encounter engenders a severe risk of injury, of death, of a lawsuit, of a reprimand. You know, we used to have an expression as federal agents, big cases, big problems, little cases, little problems, no cases, no problems. Make an arrest and the situation may quickly devolve. As it turned out in the case of the death of George Floyd, at least two of those police officers were cops for one week. They just gotten out of the academy days earlier. And what you may not know is that the police officer who's seen with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck was a training officer. How in the world is a guy a training officer when he has 17 complaints against him? I mean, just stop and think. How did that happen? 17 complaints, and he's training the new cops about how they're supposed to do the job. There were reports that a couple of dozen other people in Minneapolis since, I believe, 2015, I don't have the notes in front of me, but I believe the number was 40 or in excess of 40 since 2015, because of pressure applied to their necks were rendered unconscious. I have to tell you something. I've been involved with over 1,000 arrests, directly, indirectly. I don't even know what the number is, but it was up there. I was in a squad at one point where we were making an average of two arrests per day. I was in other squads. You know, some of the arrests are people working illegally, and then for the last half of my career, we were arresting drug traffickers, murderers, fugitives, and terrorists. Crazy stuff. You wouldn't believe half the stuff we encountered. I was never at an arrest in my entire career where anybody was rendered unconscious as a part of the arrest process. Never. I've seen people go to the hospital, agents and people we were arresting because there were big fights, and I had one guy try to throw me down a flight of stairs. All kinds of crazy things happened. But they had over 40 people in that department rendered unconscious. This was the department, if you remember, where a naturalized citizen, police officer, and he happened to have been black, shot and killed an Australian woman who had called 911 and said, she heard suspicious noises. She was concerned that someone was trying to break into where she was living. And if I remember it correctly, she was actually in her bathrobe when she came out when the police showed up. And God only knows why, but the cop in the car pulled out his gun and shot her. That cop is in jail now in Minnesota. What in the world is that about? So you've got a department with a lot of issues. And you have the mayor screaming, let's disband the department. Where has the mayor been? Where has the mayor been? Understand what I'm saying to you. Nobody wants to accept responsibility. It's like that liar Cuomo, the governor of New York State, who alleged that he was putting people with the COVID virus into nursing homes because he was following federal regulation, conveniently leaving out, of course, that federal regulation, the federal requirements or, or recommendations, was that you don't put anybody into a nursing home unless you can isolate them, test them effectively, and then treat them. Oops, we left that out. Yeah, the regulation said you may put people with COVID in nursing homes if. But he, he read the first sentence and didn't bother with the word if. You may put people with the COVID virus into nursing homes. Okay, I can do that. He left out the next three sentences or four sentences or whatever it was. A little bit less than honest, would you say? And we get this garbage all the time. Everyone points at everyone else. I didn't do it. He did it. I didn't do it. She did it. She did it. I didn't do it. Well, we can't. I'll be three years old, and these are our leaders, our leaders. Boy, oh, boy, we must have a real shortage of leaders in this country, and we do. And who can blame them? If you look at how disgusting and ugly and filthy politics is, this is no longer the discussion about ideology or methodology or goals or how we're going to get to achieve those goals. Out of the gate, boom, my opponent is a crook. My opponent is an idiot. His kids are stupid. His wife is ugly, and on it goes. All they know how to do is attack, 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 attack. And any discussion about 
believe it or not, an amazing word here. We're talking about politicians. You would think somewhere along the way the G word would come into this. Governance. Governance. They don't care about governance. They care about domination. They care about their egos. They care about campaign contributions. They care about power and authority, and we've seen it with the COVID virus. Governance? What's that? They asked the imbecile governor in New Jersey about why he was keeping people from going to church and whether you're religious or not. And frankly, I'm not particularly religious, but I certainly was raised to respect people. And while my mother was very religious, as was my first wife, may she rest in peace. But people have that right, and I certainly respect people who get comfort from religion. I wish I could sometimes. Life can be a tough proposition. And the First Amendment guarantees us the freedom of religion, Okay. And people were being arrested for going to church. And when they asked this idiot governor in New Jersey, Phil Murphy, and they asked him about the Constitution and the First Amendment, the First Amendment, not the Tenth, not the Ninth, the First Amendment, freedom of expression and and freedom to worship, right? First Amendment. The answer blew me away. I I had to shake my head and and make sure there was nothing rattling around because maybe I heard it wrong. He said the Constitution was above his pay grade. My God, are you kidding me? Without civil rights, which is what the Constitution is about, we descend into chaos. These demonstrations are about civil rights. Civil rights. We have governors and mayors giving civil rights to illegal aliens and ignoring their own citizens. Civil rights means to be a full participant in the society in which you live. Full participants. People who are here illegally aren't supposed to be here. They're not supposed to be working. The immigration laws used to be the domain of the Labor Department to protect jobs and wages of Americans. And that's, a, a, again, this, this all leads back into why there's such dissatisfaction in America. We keep on bringing in more foreign workers and the number of new jobs we're creating. It's like playing musical chairs, but instead of chairs, there's jobs. And instead of children, these are workers. So you've played that game, I'm sure. You circle the chair. And the music is playing, and you keep circling, and there's one fewer chair than the number of kids who play. And when the music stops, everybody scrambles to get their, their rear end in a seat. And the person that's not able to sit down is out, and that person takes a chair with him or with her, and then the music starts, and everyone's circling the chairs. And then it comes down to two people, one chair, and finally one person gets to be in the chair, and that's the winner. Imagine playing musical chairs, but they're not chairs, they're jobs. And these aren't children, these are adults. And those chairs are the jobs that they desperately need. And now imagine if as they're circling the chairs or the jobs and the music is playing, someone kicks open the door and lets in a hundred more people, but no more chairs. No more jobs, but we've got lots more people competing for the jobs that are there, limited as that number is. Isn't that an analogy to what we've done by bringing in Huge numbers of foreign workers and both political parties have a vested interest in it because they've been bribed. And so there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of frustration. And children are growing up without opportunities. And they know they don't have opportunities. And when children live in poverty and politicians talk about the decline of the middle class, but these children live in poverty, to them, being middle class is an unattainable dream. The American dream used to be that everyone had a shot at least of being middle class. Everyone aspired to be middle class. And what was middle class? Well, when I was growing up, middle class meant you owned your own home and you had a driveway, preferably with two cars that were fully paid for sitting in your driveway. That was the American dream. You had money to go on vacation. You had money to send your children to college. You had money to go on and maybe buy a nice suit or a nice dress and eat decent food. How many people can afford one car today? Forget about two. How many people can afford a house today? The house that I'm living in was the house my parents bought when I was 11 years old. It cost $25,500 back when I was 11. I don't know what it's worth today with all the craziness and all the damage done by the rioters, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But I can tell you that my father had to spend the equivalent of about four years of his gross pay to buy the house. Now, we didn't have the money, so we got a mortgage. It was the only time my parents took out a loan. They came from the Depression. My mother would not take out a loan to buy a car. She would not take out a loan to buy anything except the house. And today, people buy everything on time. 
everyone is extended. People have gone into bankruptcy because they're addicted to credit cards with easy cash. That was what the crash of 2008 was, the subprime mortgages. So we now have homelessness because we brought in more workers than the number of jobs that we had. Trump is trying to undo the damage, and the Democrats are going nuts. And so are the Republicans. They're all in on this scam. This is a bigger scam than Bernie Madoff could have ever dreamed of. So you displace Americans. You drive the price of housing up because more people are coming into the country needing housing. And wages are in decline. So even if you keep your job, your wages aren't keeping pace with the cost of living. So nobody talks about purchasing power. You know, it used to be that if you were making $100,000 a year, my God, wow. Well, in San Francisco today, the poverty line is 117000 a year. I'm sure it's similar here in New York City. You cannot support a dog on $30,000 a year, and the Democrats are talking about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which works out to 30000 a year, roughly. And people complain, oh, my God, what are they doing? Think of inflation. Think of the people that are living on $15 an hour, and then you get the nonsense excuse. Oh, but those are mostly kids. We're talking about McDonald's. i got to tell you, I've traveled all over the country, and more often than not, when I get to the window to pay or I get to the window to get my food, you have to have a skewed vision of what a child is or a young person is because frequently the people are in their 40s and 50s that are working at McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and all these other places. Many of them had been professionals who were displaced because we have this savage appetite not only for drugs but for cheap labor and not just illegal aliens but the high-tech workers, the H-1B visas. And I had these conversations with the Republicans, and they didn't want to hear about it. Bob Goodland in particular told me how his son was a computer guy and would love to bring in tens of thousands of brilliant Indian programmers. And I asked him, what are Americans, chop liver in the end of the conversation? Because Alan Greenspan said that the solution to wage inequality is to bring in lots more H-1B visa holders, just like Bill Gates, the people that the Congress worked for. I mean, let's face it, Bill Gates is their boss. I saw a poster. It was beautiful. It showed a whole bunch of people, lots and lots of people from overhead. You're looking down. It almost looks like an ant colony, but they was, these were human heads. And it said, come back when you have a lobbyist, obviously referencing the U.S. government. Do you know what the other name for the House of Representatives is? It's supposed to be the People's House. Now, what does that mean? Well, you're supposed to be able to go visit your congressperson, congresswoman, congressman, and say, this is my concern. What can you do to, to satisfy my, my concern? Now, they're not going to do everything everyone wants. Sometimes these are mutually exclusive issues. But the idea is you're your own lobbyist. You go to your government representative, and during a session of Congress, he or she may or may not do a proposal, do a bill, propose legislation that satisfies the needs of the bulk of his or her constituents. That's what a democratic republic does. And when I use the word democracy, some of the conservatives get crazy. Oh, this is a republic. Well, if we're going to start to have a debate about government 101, and I've taken some political science courses, you're going to lose all of your neighbors. They're not going to understand what in the world you're talking about. The concept of democracy is that we, the people, are the ones that run the government, whether directly or indirectly through the process of a republic. But the process itself, I assure you, is a democratic process. So while we're sitting around having a little debate over a cup of tea, we're arguing how to rearrange the deck furniture the Titanic is sinking. And, in fact, there was a study done by a Princeton professor back in 2014, and he came to the alarming and disheartening conclusion that America was no longer a republic anyway. He said, forget republic. It's an oligarchy. The wealthy control everything. And he's right. Bill Gates going to Congress and telling them what he wanted. And there's Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Fed, back in 2009, April the 30th. We need to do what Bill Gates wants. Basically, unlimited H-1B visas. Too many people are making too much money in this country. Could you imagine going to Congress and saying there are Americans making too much money? I want you to let it sink in. Americans, according to Alan Greenspan, are making too much money. And what's the solution to Americans who make too much money? And he even called them. He had the chutzpah to call them the privileged elite. He wasn't talking about himself with his mansion in the, Ham in the, in the Hamptons. He wasn't talking about Bill, Bill Gates. He wasn't talking about Zuckerberg. He wasn't talking about Bill Cook over at Apple. 
He was talking about American computer programmers, privileged elite. And he said the solution to wage inequality in America is to make Americans compete with lots of foreign workers. And by doing that, you will get rid of that wage premium that they're getting. And then you greatly reduce wage inequality between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. In other words, I'm here to tell you, Congress, kill the middle class. And, of course, the media reported on it, right? Of course not. And the only reason I knew about it, I happened to have been web surfing, and they said there was going to be a hearing. I said, oh, I'll watch that. And he testified for Chuck the Schmuck, my alleged senator here in New York. He used to be my congressman. And Schumer just sat there with his mouth open and just let him talk because he was there at Schumer's behest. That is the goal of both parties, kill the middle class, placate the people that bribe them. How do they bribe them? It's called political campaign contributions. Lobbying should be illegal. If you want to power America with clean energy, I have the solution. You want to know? Individuals move through those doors from the congressman's office to K Street, where they become lobbyists at double the salary. They spin the generators, and we have clean energy. That would be the only thing clean about the whole operation. So you have disenfranchised Americans. They're being told that everything that's done is done based on race, which I do not believe to be the case, but there are issues with race in America. Look, unfortunately, people can be bigots. And and who contributes to this? The pollsters and the politicians. They talk about black voters and white voters and Latino voters and Christian voters and Jewish voters. Think about it. You want to do demographics, do demographics about race, about age, about income, about education, about whether people live in farms or they live in the rural areas or they live in the cities. That makes sense. If you have children, you have different concerns from someone who doesn't have kids. If you're 20, you have a different concern from someone who's 70. Fair enough. They don't do that. If the president wants the black vote, this is what he has to do. So now black people think, gee whiz, I guess that's what I should be demanding. Because they told me that's what blacks want. And I, I want to be, you know, <laughs> loyal to my, 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 my race, I guess. I don't know. And, and people who aren't black hear that, and they say, is that what those folks want? Are they crazy? We are creating discord through the polls, and the polls aren't supposed to influence public opinion. They're supposed to you know, observe public opinion, to gather public opinion. They become the motivator for the public opinion. Not a good situation, folks. Not even close to being a good situation. And it goes on all the time. So we saw this horrific crime. We saw this poor guy strangled to death over a period of nine minutes. I, I, as I say, I, I sit here in a state of horror. Any rational, decent human being would have to be Sick and disgust. I, I, as I say, I, they called me the wordsmith at work. I don't have words to describe my feelings. I absolutely do not. And it's happened before. But when you have politicians and leaders, so-called, who want to capitalize on it, you convince the population that this happened by because of the guy's color. And, and with all those complaints, I would like to know if Chauvin, the cop whose knee was on Mr. Floyd's neck, uh, the other incidents involve people of color or not. That would be an interesting question. Is he a bigot or is he just a bad cop? You know, there's, there's, there's a difference. But it's best to polarize the people because if we're busy fighting between ourselves, which is the game here, we ignore the crookedness of the politicians. This is not unlike the pickpocket who works with a partner who comes by and spritzes ketchup on your lapel and you're all concerned about cleaning up your lapel and while you're scraping the garbage off your lapel, his cohort comes by, grabs your wallet, and runs. The politicians have Americans fighting Americans so they can do the damage. And look at the damage they're doing. I've been in some very bad neighborhoods. And now we have these idiot mayors. And I see it on TV, people talking about law enforcement, and they never carried a badge. They never made an arrest. Oh, the police are militarized. Oh, my God. You know, even Governor Huckabee over at Fox News talked about that after the Michael Brown incident. And Michael Brown, by the way, 
they kept describing him as a teenage boy, which he was, but he had committed a strong arm robbery and he was something like six foot one. And he was allegedly, and and the, the trial was conducted. There were multiple investigations. Apparently he was reaching for a police officer's gun. That's not going to end well. It's a tragedy. Any death of any human life is a tragedy, so let's be real clear. But immediately everyone said, get rid of all that military hardware we've given the police. And if you remember the San Bernardino disaster with that couple where the woman actually killed her coworkers who had just thrown a party for her because she had a baby, it was because they had an armed personnel carrier that they were able to finally stop them. They were supposed to return the armed personnel carrier to the military, I believe the next day or a couple of days later. Thank God they had that armed personnel carrier. We shouldn't be using them on routine patrol. I absolutely agree. One of the things I saw in New York that really bothered me was they have something that they, I believe they were calling them the Hercules teams. I haven't seen them recently. Well, we haven't been out recently either. But heavily armed cops with submachine guns and Kevlar helmets and and flak jackets would jump out of 20 police cars on a given street corner and stand there for about a half hour, jump back in their cars and race to another location. And the idea was to to keep the terrorists off guard. What is this, Halloween? Keep them off guard from what? On the chance that they might be standing on that street corner on that particular day? They weren't responding to anything. That's nuts. It's sheer madness. It's bad policing as far as I'm concerned. But you need to have those officers with that training and that equipment available at a moment's notice for the day that, God forbid, there is a terrorist attack. That's part of the reason that the cities are being given funding, so that they have the equipment so that they can meet force with force. The trick to avoiding a shootout, folks, you may not know this, but the trick to it is to go in with such overwhelming numbers and firepower that the bad guy looks and understands what he's up against and surrenders peacefully. The Strategic Air Command flew bombers pretty much 24-7 right up to the border of the Soviet Union. They never dropped a bomb in anger. And their slogan was uh, that their profession was peace, keeping the peace by being a deterrent, deterrent through force, deterrent through enforcement. So now we're being told, oh, we don't need those heavy weapons and we don't need those vans. I remember when I was with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, where I spent the last 10 years of my career with the old INS, um, I was assigned to a bunch of different agencies. I had desks at DEA, ATF, and the FBI. It was very interesting. It gave me tremendous insight into how all these different agencies operated. Um, It was really the job of a lifetime, except I was at war with my agency because it was so damn inept. But I remember one day, and I was doing a lot of work with ATF, the FBI came to me and said, Mike, we're shorthanded, we're executing warrants, and you need to come out with us. So I called up my boss at ATF. I said, Billy, I'm sorry, I can't get out there tonight. I'm going to be with the FBI. And he said, are you kidding? You're not going to believe what we're going to find. We have a great informant, and we're going to come away with amazing stuff. We really need your help. And I had to beg off, and we made a bet. And the bet was a steak dinner, depending on who came up with a better seizure that night. Interesting bet. And I went out with the FBI, and we took down the door. We had some search warrants. And we came up, if I remember correctly, with a couple of submachine guns, the kind of weapons they don't want the police to have. I guess they want them to have wheel guns, you know, little revolvers, lots of luck. Uh, and, and by the way, you're going to wind up with police officers just quitting. And who are you going to hire that's, that's worth hiring if nobody with a half a brain uh, wants to take the job after everything that's been going on? Just think about what that hap- where that takes us what rabbit hole that looks like. And so we seized a bunch of drugs, several kilos of narcotics, lots of bullets, uh, some fake documents, and and hardware, lots of guns. And I got on the phone, and I'm licking my chops because I love prime rib. Let me tell you, that's my favorite. Rib steaks and prime rib, either or, I'm good. And I called up Billy, and I said, you know, I'm salivating. I've got my, my steak sauce in my briefcase. I'm coming over. He said, don't be so quick, Mike. I said, you think you can beat me? He said, absolutely. He said to me, what did you catch at your location? And I gave him a rundown of all the weapons, the ammunition, the drugs. He said, you know, that's not a bad day's work. I said, what do you mean, not a bad day's work? Didn't you come up with something? He said, oh, yes, the bomb squad just left. 
we found two live hand grenades in the apartment. Two live hand grenades. Can you imagine? So understand what we're up against. I had to pay for his dinner, by the way. But the point of the matter is, you have people that know nothing about law enforcement and these mayors who have totally dysfunctional police departments demonstrate that they're inept at running police departments. And they're the ones saying, oh, we don't need that hardware. We need it. We need to hold it in reserve because we need to be able to respond to the craziness. And it's interesting that DEA has been tasked with working on figuring out where the violence is coming from because my concern and we've, I've spoken about this innumerable times. We know that Hezbollah has been working with the drug cartels in Latin America, moving sleeper agents, narcotics, and possibly weapons into the United States. And this has been going on for years. I don't know that that's the case, but the fact that DEA has been set loose on this, and again, I, I spent four years at DEA intelligence and 10 years with the desk at DEA, my instincts, based on nearly 15 years, is there's, there's an outside connection to another country. And, and the, the, the usual suspects, Iran, Russia, China. And think about how this has knocked China off the headlines. Think about how this has also knocked off the headlines, this whole thing with Rodenstein giving testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, the thing that bothered me was when uh, Graham, if he would have signed the warrant for FISA, if he knew about the exculpatory information. Exculpatory information is information that shows that the person did nothing wrong. You see, there was justification for whatever happened. And he said, for that and other reasons, and Graham didn't ask him what I thought was a pivotal question, what were the other reasons? But understand how bad this was. Apparently, under the Obama administration, the FBI was used as a weapon. They weaponized law enforcement. If you want to talk about a problem, that's a problem. I see I have a call. I'm just going to see who this is. Uh, perhaps this will be interesting. Perhaps not. We'll find out. Let's see how we do here. Hey, how you Hello, doing? you're on the air. Who's calling? Hi, yeah, my name is Zachary. I'm calling from South Carolina. Hi, Zachary. How are you this evening? Happy Friday. I'm good. Happy Friday. Uh, I'd like to say, first of all, that I stand in solidarity with the police officers uh, especially those two that were just uh, suspended without pay, uh, and the whole department with the emergency response team decided to resign in the face of that. I think that's what we need to see. Um, my first point would be I think you're right that the police do need you know, military-grade weapons and military equipment. Uh, I, I myself was in the military. I was a cavalry scout. I, was, I served in combat. Thank you, uh, you, don't show up, you, don't, you don't show up with less than what the enemy has. You show up with more. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know that expression. If you find yourself in combat and you're in a fair fight, somebody screwed up the planning. <laughs> exactly. There should always be. You should always have overwhelming firepower. That's how battles are won. Yes. Uh, but, yes. And, and 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 don't 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 take this the wrong way because I've actually really enjoyed what you're saying. Uh, but I do disagree with you on like you know a nation that's you know really. Messing with us. Uh, of course, Hezbollah is probably involved with cartels. I mean, that's how you know insurgency groups make money. So I'm not going to say you're wrong there. Uh, and if you did intelligence, you know for sure. Look at FARC. Look at Colombia's FARC. They were you know a so-called so-called Maoist movement, but they moved cocaine. They used drugs to make yes. insurgency money. Uh, but I and do also think to that do damage with, to their enemies, and also to do damage to their enemies. Of course, of course. I mean, and I'm not going to disagree with you there. Uh, we honestly, we, we should just have tight borders. And don't take me, what I'm about to say, do not take this as supporting Hezbollah or Iran or the Revolutionary Guard. Do not take this as what I'm saying. But I do believe okay, that the ahead. nation that's mostly causing this harm is Israel, in my opinion. It's the only nation to bomb our Navy, to set up bombs outside of a Cairo embassy, to get us into a retaliation act with Egypt. They're the only nation to be busted in the largest spy ring operation. They they have foreign nationals who work in our government. That's bad. That is bad. You know, our our Congress and our and, and our Senate are is overwhelmed with foreign nationals. And how can you have dual well, loyalty? You uh, can't. So, so let me let me let me address it, and then I do want to move on because there are things I wanted to talk about. But uh, but but just to get to the point, I, I work closely with the Israelis. I uncovered a terror plot. We prevented a bombing of a refinery. 
I can tell you they gave us better cooperation than any other government I worked with, whether you want to talk about the Brits or the Canadians. And they were great. I got an award from Japan. They were terrific. But I will tell you that no one ever gave us the level of assistance and with the speed that they provided it than did the state of Israel. Um, I I, I really believe that all governments are are really looking over everyone else's shoulder, and I'm not justifying espionage against us. I don't want to be misunderstood on that point either. But I I think if you look at the Middle East, whether or not we were working with the Israelis, Iran has no use for us. They always have seen us as the great Satan, and they will always see us as the great Satan. Um, And the reason they hate Israel, I believe the biggest reason, is because they see Israel as, as, as a friend of the United States. That's wrong, though. That's wrong. That's wrong. That didn't happen until the Ayatollah and the Islamic Revolution in the 70s. We, we patrolled freely right, through the trade of – thanks to Jimmy Carter, who, help, who helped to get the yeah, shot of the post. Of course. Of course. No, you're right. I mean, you're right. I mean, but, but I think I would, rather, I would rather be allied with somebody that has a strategic resource than, say, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is just as bad as Israel, I mean, as Iran, like when it comes to human rights. You, you cannot Saudi say Arabia that Iran sent us is, their pilots. By the way, so, so, so just to get to that point, and then again, I, I, I will have to run, unfortunately. But let me just tell you, Saudi Arabia sent us the pilots on 9-11, and we've never had a good accounting for what that was all about or why George W. Bush allowed uh, the, the, the family of bin Laden to leave the United States when all other airplanes were grounded. Exactly. Uh, well, continue on with your show. I enjoyed it. I'll probably uh, call in again. Uh, I wish I had more time. I think we could actually have a good conversation. Uh, I, I agree yeah, with you. But, but, I, would, but I, I do thank you that? for the call, and it, it's thought-provoking. And, and by the way, here's something but, that everyone needs to understand out there. Disagreements and conversations are critical. If you want to celebrate our Constitution, you do it through freedom of speech and the idea that we can disagree and have a civil discourse. And even if we ultimately don't come to an agreement, it's the idea that we have to respect each other's right to have an opinion, which is being lost on college campuses. I was going to teach debate on the college level when I, when I had an opportunity to become a federal agent, so I went for that, so I went in a different direction. But what we're seeing on campuses, which is very disturbing, through Antifa and other radical groups on our campuses, many are being funded by foreign governments. You know, there's an ongoing investigation, and they found that at least $6 billion have been poured onto U.S. campuses from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from China, maybe Russia, maybe Iran as well. And, and I think there's a lot of insurgency on our campuses because of all of that foreign money buying influence on the campuses. Well, I would, can I, could I uh, say one thing before I go? Go right ahead. Right. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll give you I, one I, minute I to wrap up. Go ahead. Okay, I agree with you 100%. I would say also you named a lot of countries. Uh, of course, all of them export money to students. Uh, Israel is also one. Israel is very active in, in college reform and in college revolution, uh, mostly combating you know, the free Palestinian movement. Uh, no matter your politics, no outside government should be sending money to our colleges. Uh, also, I would say that at the end of the day, we're all Americans. If you love the Constitution, if you, you, know, if you have a strong belief that if you work hard, you can achieve, we're all in this together. Uh, we need to come up with something to, to settle these riots. And actually come together, secure our borders, and don't allow outside interference with anybody. Uh, that's my bottom Absolutely. line. Absolutely. Uh, I, I could not agree with you more on that. Oh, I, I couldn't and, uh, agree with you more. You're, you're exactly right. But unfortunately, we, we now have the best government money can buy, and I think you would agree to that also. Of course I would. And I would say thank you for your service. Uh, to, you know, your. I would call it paramilitary, and you know all of your experience. I thank you for that. Uh, your job was not easy. You put your life on the line, and I thank you for that. And um, even though through dis- we might have some foreign policy disagreements, but I believe on a national level that me and you would be shoulder to shoulder if if the Constitution needed defended. You, you're absolutely right on that point. I thank you for your service. I thank you for your phone call. Hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe and stay well. I hope you too. Listening. Interesting phone call. Uh, Look, and that's the point that we've lost here in America today, folks, is the ability to have a conversation, the ability to disagree respectfully. It's a disaster. And the president posted a a, a Twitter, um, I I think it was a a link to a video. Twitter took it down and said there was a copyright infringement. Why? He was showing respect to George Lloyd. Now, why would they do that? This is censorship by the media. 
This is straight out of the pages of George Orwell. I ask all of you, please read George Orwell. And what we're also seeing, by the way, is the way the media attacks the president with whatever he says. And I don't always agree with Donald Trump. There are times I, I, I shake my head and I say, gee whiz, he should have been more articulate. But when he said after they had to shut the government down that he feared suicide, immediately there was an article that was posted, and this was in the Chicago Tribune. And it was a column, and here's the headline. Column, Donald Trump's suicide warning is a sign of his privilege and most Americans can't relate. When he said that he was fearful that because people are locked in their houses and, and will lose their jobs, that it might drive them to suicide, this woman wrote this scathing attack about how he's all about money. Now, what's very interesting about that, if you, if you look at what the uh, CNBC article had to say, and, and here's a CNBC headline, interesting headline. Coronavirus creates, quote, perfect storm to suicide risk as job losses soar and people are isolated at home. And they were actually citing a report from the Journal of the American Medical Association, a highly respected journal, and they had a number of uh, well-respected credentialed psychiatrists talking about how we get identity from our jobs. You know, you ask anybody, who are you? And somewhere in the, fir in the first three or four items on the list, they're going to tell you what they do for a living. I remember if anyone asked my dad who he was, he would say, I'm a plumber by trade. And he'd be very proud of the fact that he was a tradesman. I was proud that he was a tradesman. He was really an amazing guy. I miss him terribly. But he would say, I'm a tradesman. And, and, and that's cool, tradesman. And that's fine. That's who he, where he got his identity. People say to me, who are you? Well, federal agent, retired federal agent. We get identity from it. People that lose their jobs and people who are isolated in their houses and people who don't know how they're going to support themselves or their families are under incredible stress. Loss of a job is only slightly less traumatic for some people than the loss of a spouse. What the president said was right. But we are now living in an era where no matter what President Trump says, he's going to be attacked and attacked vociferously and aggressively because he's the guy that came to the picnic and dumped sand in their pie. And what was the sand? It's a word that also begins with the letter S, not sand, but sovereignty. Donald Trump understands the need for sovereignty. He needs, understands the need for law enforcement for the safety of our people. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm registered as a Democrat. I can't tell you the last time I voted for a Democrat because they're not Democrats. They've become seditionists. They've become anarchists. They've become totalitarians. They don't want to have a conversation. The idea is to shut down conversation. It's my way or the highway. I know so many people worry about the Second Amendment. We also need to be worrying about the First Amendment because the First Amendment is in danger. When social media can censor the President of the United States, you don't stand a chance. And you can't be free if you're not allowed to express your thoughts. If opportunities to express yourself are shut off and you can't share your ideas, you're not living in a free society, folks. This democratic process can quickly go down the hopper. That's why when insurgents take over a government, the first thing they seize are the radio and television stations. It used to also be the newspapers, but they're not quite as relevant anymore. Why do they do that? To control the flow of information. Read 1984 and the Ministry of Truth. If you can eliminate words, you eliminate the thoughts the words represent because human beings think with words. That's the whole idea. If you could shut down conversation, if you could convince one group of Americans that the other group is evil, then you start fighting. That's how the Holocaust started. The Germans were convinced that the reason they weren't successful because of the Weimar regime was because the Jews had done damage to them, and that was it. Full blast attack. And at the end, look what happened. We have to have mutual respect for each other, not judge someone by skin color or race or religion. To me, those are superficial identifiers. It's as Martin Luther King said, it's not the color of your skin, but what's in your soul, what's in your heart. Who are you as a person? And so you've got American turned against American, but I'm optimistic, and I'm going to tell you why I am. But this is where we have to get involved. Antifa is not new. They've been around for decades. And think about the Occupy Wall Street movement. Remember that? I mean, here in New York, we certainly knew that. And they went nuts. And for the first few days, they were joined by all sorts of other people teachers, doctors, nurses, flight attendants, airline pilots, because they went after Wall Street and the evils of Wall Street. 
And, you know, when people say that we're really a capitalist country, we're really a country of, of welfare for corporations. And the biggest example is immigration. Corporations are getting what they want, cheap, exploitable labor and the ability to move their methods of production out of the country, which is why we have a problem with China, because if we cut off all relations with China, we've cut off our source of uh, the antibiotics we need and all sorts of equipment. How in the world we've allowed corporations to take such essential materials and move them to a country that is our adversary blows my mind. Blows my mind. We can paralyze ourselves, or they've actually paralyzed us if they want to. And I've, I've had these conversations with people for many years. But on campuses, they're being taught something very differently. That's why these countries are pouring that kind of money onto our campuses. So we have this problem with China. We have this problem with other countries. And, and the kids growing up don't understand how dangerous this all is. So the, the problem that we face is Americans are losing their jobs. Wages are being suppressed. And corporations have never made more money because this is all about the bottom line. There's got to be more to what we do as a country than the bottom line. We, we, we've got to the point where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I find it amazing that, that you know, Ocasio-Cortez was talking about corporate welfare while she supports corporate welfare through immigration, which is the biggest component of corporate welfare, cheap, exploitable labor. Think about that. So you have a lot of disenfranchised Americans, and they're angry. So when the Occupy Wall Street movement started, everyone came out and said, yeah, we stand with them. Wall Street's done all this damage. And then these crazies showed themselves to be what they are, extremely violent. And when they turned violent, everybody walked away from them. They actually ran away from them. And I think you saw that play out this week with Black Lives Matter. The demonstrations are fine. I support them. I'm a very big believer in the First Amendment. Peaceful demonstrations are at the soul of this country. The right to seek redress of grievances are at the heart of America, at the heart of our tradition. When you can't seek redress of grievances, whether I agree or not, in this case I certainly agree, by the way, but I, I don't see as much of a racial element here as the people stirring the pot would have you believe. I think you have some police officers who shouldn't be police officers, just as we have teachers and doctors and lawyers and airline pilots who should probably be finding a different way to make a living. But when law enforcement officers do the wrong thing, you could wind up in, in trouble. And, of course, the other thing is how do you manage police departments? Well, for the politicians, I fear that all too often all they think a police department is is a way to generate money and control the population. You know, we all know the stories about the little towns with the speed traps on the other side of the speed sign when you when you cross onto their in, into their city line. So they think police is a uh, is a money generator. We'll, we'll get people for speeding. And if you measure the success of a police officer, and everyone needs to figure out what the evaluations are, that should be part of the investigation. I even said that about immigration. What is the? How does that cop on the beat go out there, or the, the highway patrolman go out there? The way that he or she knows what's expected is by how the evaluations are done. How much of the evaluation deals with how many arrests they make? Because if this is all about making arrests and you want to be successful and, and move up in the department and get the good assignments, and maybe uh, become part of management, then you're going to do what the evaluation tells you to do. So if the emphasis is on making arrests, then police officers will try to turn situations that don't need to end in an arrest into a situation that ends with that arrest so they have that statistic because this is a numbers game and the analogy that i use is imagine a cop who knows his neighborhood real well and there's a couple of troublemakers and they're out in the schoolyard and they're having a fight and the cop pulls up in the police car and he knows the kids and he calls them over and he calms down the fight and he reaches into the trunk of his police cruiser and he pulls out a basketball that he keeps for emergencies he tosses them the ball it's to stop the fighting and start playing ball. You want to work off some steam, have a good game of basketball. I'll come back later to see how you're doing. A very effective way of dealing with people. That's community policing at its best. But if he is required to make a certain number of arrests, he or she is likely to look at those kids that are carrying on and immediately escalate the situation and start arresting people. And maybe there's a fight and maybe people get hurt. And why is this happening? because that police officer's evaluation requires that he make a certain minimum number of arrests. Is that the best way 
to send police officers out into a community to restore law and order and, and, and have peace. I hope you follow my point. Uh, on my job, I wanted very much, because I was in a, in a squad known as area control, where our job was to arrest as many illegal aliens as possible. And back then, they didn't care if the person worked in a sweatshop or the guy was wanted for murder. They used to say, a scratch is a scratch, and arrest is an arrest. And it was very disturbing, because I would much rather go out and look for some guy who shot at a police officer than somebody who was working in a sweatshop. Now, both jobs need to be done because we want to free up jobs for Americans. That's the whole idea to going after aliens working illegally. In fact, if you come to America on a tourist visa and you're caught working, you're subject to arrest and deportation because you're stealing a job. And you hear this nonsense, oh, we can't interfere with these poor people. They just want to go to work. They're not supposed to be working because they're taking the jobs Americans or lawful immigrants should be taking. That's why labor used to enforce the immigration laws primarily. But my boss knew what I wanted to do. He tended to agree with me. And he said, okay, Mike, I'll never forget the conversation. He said, pick a day, any day of the week. And I remember I said, Thursday, why? And he said, well, Thursdays you'll go out, and when we go after people working illegally, you'll take part in those arrests. The other four days out of the week, you're free to work with the local cops and go after the bad guys. And for about three or four years, uh, boy, oh, boy, it was the best job in the world. I was working side-by-side side with the New York City Police Department. There was no such thing as a sanctuary back then. And we were taking bank robbers and drug dealers, uh, pimps, and uh, you name it, off the street. We broke up bank robbery teams and people that were robbing the, uh, suitcases at the airport. Um, drugs wasn't yet a big problem in the, in the late 70s, and that's where I was at that point. And everybody was happy, although I wasn't generating the numbers that would have gotten me an award. We had guys getting awards because they would arrest a bunch of people in a factory, for example. What I was doing was emotionally satisfying. And to me, that meant more than some award. I had to make a decision. But when you put cops on the street and you tell them we're going to evaluate you purely by the number of arrests you make or how much revenue you bring in, perhaps, I don't know. That should be a part of the way we look at every department. What are the marching orders that we're giving to those men and women that are going in harm's way to protect us? And I really do find it remarkable that the mayors of these sanctuary cities want to end the police when they're the ones who mismanage those police departments because at the end of the day, and everyone seems to be forgetting it, the police commissioner answers to the mayor, answers to the governor. So when you see chiefs of police saying that sanctuary cities are a good idea, they don't think so. I've had many private meetings. But they know that if they disagree with the mayor, they're going to get fired. So when a police department goes bad, ladies and gentlemen, look no further than City Hall. Those are the people who are really running the show. Something for you to think about. And if we're going to keep on suppressing the wages and job opportunities for Americans, we will continue to have children growing up in this country for whom the American dream does not exist. That's not what America is supposed to be about either. This is supposed to be a democratic republic. Those politicians are supposed to work for us. With everything going on, we need to make certain that they come to find out that we're not the fools they thought that we were. We need to make them accountable. And many of those politicians, in my view, are insubordinate. They're failing to listen to the people of this country because it's hard to listen when you have that much money shoved down your ears. It's got to stop. There's an, there's an awful lot on the line. And the only people who can truly make a difference at this stage of the game is you and me and all of our fellow Americans, irrespective of race, religion, ethnicity, even party affiliation. Let's make those politicians accountable. Please check out my article at frontpagemag.com. Please pass the information along to as many folks as you can and be part of my Bucket Brigade of Truth. Also consider joining Team DML. I do podcasts at least twice a week for, for Dennis Michael Lynch over there. But always remember, folks, that democracy is not a spectator's sport. Thank you for listening. Stay well, stay safe, and we'll see you next week right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. So long for now. <laughs>